Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to FBC this morning. Um, my name is Ben Sanford. Chances are, if you were here last week, you were expecting to see Tim Sanford, my father. Uh, I don't know if you're disappointed or pleasantly surprised. Please don't tell us, whichever one it is. Uh, but Dad asked me to come up this morning just briefly to take a few minutes and recap what we talked about last week, just to kind of set, uh, get our minds back in gear um, as we continue the story of uh, the Lord building his church in the book of Acts. So we're in Acts 13, like Mark said. We picked up last week in uh, verse 25, where Barnabas and Saul had uh, been sent down from Antioch to Jerusalem to provide um, some financial help from the church in Antioch uh, to the, the brethren that were in Jerusalem and, and that region down there. And so they just returned from that trip at the end of chapter 12. And then beginning of chapter 13, it says there were at Antioch in the church there prophets and teachers, and it lists five people, Barnabas, um, this guy named Simeon, Lucius, uh, Menaean, and um, Saul. And there were little clues in their names and in that verse that just gave us a little bit of a kind of a, a window into what their uh, backgrounds might have been like. And we understood that there was probably a certain level of diversity there among those guys, not just in obviously personality, right? Different people, different strengths and weaknesses but also in their cultural backgrounds and in, their, um, in their, uh, how they grew up. So those guys, uh, the Lord was able to use to accomplish his purpose, different people to accomplish the same uh, purpose. And so they were ministering to the Lord there and fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, okay, I want you to set aside Barnabas and Saul. I've got a job that I want them to do. So they do that, they, they pray for them, they fast, and they lay hands on these guys, which was an identification thing, right? The church was saying, we're, we're with you, we're agreeing with God that, that you know, this is what he wants you to do, and we're behind that. And they send them out to, um, uh, from Antioch, and they start heading down towards Cyprus. They land on that east coast. And it says that they start teaching in uh, the synagogue, specifically to the Jews, all the way from the east side of the island, and they move, as you can see there, to the west. So it, it says in uh, verse 5 that they took along John Mark as their helper. He had gone with them down to Jerusalem, and he's going to play a little bit of a minor role in this story and then, uh, and then throughout the rest of the book of Acts as well. <clears throat> So it says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So they've got a Jew. When they're at that west side of the island, they've got a, a Jewish false prophet he's described as, along with a, a Gentile proconsul. So there's, there's, you would expect in this day and age, right, that the Jews would be on the same team with each other. In this, you see a contrast where uh, the false prophet is against these guys, but the Gentile is described as a man of intelligence. He's wanting to hear, no, let me hear what they're saying. So he calls uh, Saul and Barnabas and has them come to him and asks, wants to know, what's this word of the Lord that you guys are proclaiming to the people here? And so they tell him. And... Uh, Bar-Jesus, this Jewish false prophet, 
if you remember, opposes them and, and tries to, it says that he tries to, uh, uh, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so Saul says this to him, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And that's exactly what happens. So Saul blinds him then through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this guy, uh, Sergius Paulus, is amazed by this. But it says in that passage that he's not only amazed at what Saul did, what happened, but he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. He was amazed at the message that they were uh, bringing. So uh, he... It says that he believes when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And so they leave that island of Cyprus, and they begin to go back to the mainland. And at that point, John Mark leaves them. We don't know, we're not told why. We get a, a little hint of that later. I'm sure uh, that will be discussed later on as, we, as, as it comes up in the book of Acts. But that's all the information that we're given there um, at this point in the story. So we dropped off there, and we'll pick it up in verse 14. Thank you, Ben. <clears throat> now you know what I look like with hair right there, for those who are wondering. <laughs> All right, if you're open, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 13, we'll get uh, started on this. You know, I didn't teach him to move away from the podium a whole lot, but I at least taught him to go over time. So, you know, that's half the battle right there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13, we're going to pick up from uh, this story and follow along with the journey that Paul is on. Remember, this is the first missionary journey that Paul and his team are taking. <clears throat> and we're going to um, concentrate specifically uh, on a sermon that he's going to preach. Now, this is the first uh, recorded sermon of Paul for us in Scripture. And I find this intriguing because, um, as he showed on the map, they, they, they went to uh, Cyprus there and they began to teach in the different Jewish synagogues. And so there was something going on during all that time, but Luke doesn't see it uh, necessary to tell us what was being said in those until now. And it causes me to say, okay, Lord, what's the, what's the purpose of this? Why are you doing that? And Scripture doesn't actually tell us that, but I think that there's some uh, things about this that are tremendously helpful for us, both in our own confidence in what we believe in, but also in our ability to express that to others. So we're going to kind of look at this and see some of the framework that Paul uses in this explanation as he begins to present the gospel to these believers. So if you're with me uh, in chapter 13, we're going to look in verse 14, starting up and get the context of it. It says, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pis Pisidia. Now this is a different Antioch. I don't know if you caught that on the map, but this is in a different region. There was actually, um, I want to say there were 16. There was, it was a large number of towns that were called Antioch. I don't know if you um, think that's an issue or not, but I find that whenever I'm going around traveling around the U.S., I find all kinds of towns. Oh, yeah, we have that same name in our state, you know, that kind of a thing. So they did too. They came to Antioch, and then they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Now, this is very common practice for them. Ben highlighted that for us. As they begin their journey, they're going to first stop off at the synagogues of the Jews. They're going to be um, 
engaging with those uh, individuals. And it says, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So this was also very common. You'll notice there that he says, uh, After the reading of the law and the prophets. So at that time in the synagogue, there would be someone who would get up and they would read from the law. And then someone else would read from the prophets. There would always be this reading that they would listen to. And here, then afterwards, they give them an opportunity. Hey, you guys are new. If there's something you got to say, say it to us. And of course, Paul is not shy at all. Like, yeah, I was hoping you'd get finished so I could get up there, right? Like, so he stands up and he says, stood up and motioned with his hand, said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now that tells us right there that we're not just dealing with Jews who are in this synagogue, even though that is where they would normally gather, but it also says, and you who fear God. So there were others who were joining together with them, and we're going to see that even as we go uh, through the remainder of this. So the first thing that we want to look at that Paul's going to now preach about, he's going to start here speaking on the past and how God was faithful to them. Now, as we go through this, please don't hear this as, well, this is how you have to present the gospel. That's not what's happening here. But what we hopefully are going to learn from this is that there's a bit of a framework that Paul uses to help people to connect, to understand. I find so many times when I'm talking to people about witnessing that they um, will jump right to it, so to speak. In other words, they want to say, hey, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can be saved? And they're going like, like, who is Jesus and why did he do that, right? Like, we don't even give them some, some background, some, some framework to lay some of the truths that we're trying to teach to them or trying to exp- express to them in a way that's understandable. You're going to see Paul do this, and again, something that the Lord can teach our hearts through that. So he starts off first by, because he knows his audience, and he knows that they've been taught from the law, and they've been taught from the prophets, he goes back into that, and he tells them, do you guys remember how God did this? Let's look at this in the next few verses. Verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So already, even as he's starting into the history, just like the book of Acts is history, right? We're reading this so that we understand what transpired. But we're reading it more for understanding what God does. The triumph of the gospel. This is how God's been at work. Well, that's what he's doing. He's backing up with them and doing the same exact thing and telling them, guys... Do you remember that? They would have known all of this stuff. But he's reminding them of some things about God. That he was the one who with his uplifted arm in power brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's not telling them in this. He's not reminding them that there was 400 years that they were slaves in Egypt. He's just covering over the, over the tops of it, so to speak. But we're learning something about God or we're reminded something about God. This is the one who chose us, he says, like this nation of Israel. Why? Because he's going to use them as a light to who? Us, the Gentiles. He's going to reveal something. He's going to show something. And it's going to be through these people. 
And so it begins, right? He goes on then, he says, now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. So I don't know if you know much of this story, but as they came out of Egypt, out of slavery, then they crossed the Red Sea. Do you remember that story where, where the waters parted and they walked across on dry land? How amazing is that, right? Like all of this should be flooding through the mind of the people that he's talking to because they know. Now the people that you talk to might not know any of this. You're going to have to be careful about that. You're going to have to figure that out. Like, what am I saying or what can I say to them so that they'll follow along and, and, and I won't lose them, but I don't want to go so deep that, oh, man, I'm boring them now with all the details of this. You're going to have to trust the Lord for some wisdom in that as you walk with him, just like Paul's doing here. He put up with them for 40 years. After they came through that Red Sea... God says, here, I have a land. This land out here, that's yours. I've decided that's going to be yours. I want you to go in and possess it. And so they sent a few guys in to have a look at that land, and they looked at that and realized, wow, this is an amazing country. (laughs) We'll take this. Except for the people who are in here, they seem to be looking at us like like we're grasshoppers and they're giants. (laughs) I don't think we can do this one, Lord. And they wouldn't trust them. They wouldn't believe them for that. And so guess what? For 40 years, they wandered around in this wilderness territory until all of that generation passed away and the next generation was given the opportunity. But God took care of them all along. He fed them. He even made sure that the shoes that were on their feet didn't wear out. I, I wear shoes, different ones. Some of them I really like, you know, like, and then they wear out and, oh, man, I got to go buy another. Wouldn't you love to have 40? Well, some of us are wearing shoes that last for 40 years, I guess. My wife thinks sometimes mine last too long. He put up with them in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Now, just so you know, the English is bad there, because that 450 years is not now 450 years of of judges. It's actually from the time that we're talking about of the patriarchs all up until Samuel, For 450 years, God has been doing this and caring for this nation until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So he's rehearsing this whole history for them. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. This is a different Saul. This isn't the Saul who becomes Paul. This is a guy in the Old Testament, right? First king of Israel, not necessarily one after God's own heart. And so it says that he was a man of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was king for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up for them David as king. So so again, we learn something about God. God is sovereign. God has the right to choose, to decide, I'm going to use you in this way. Oh, I'm done with you. I'm taking you out. I'm putting someone else. That's all his prerogative. Now, he does this for a reason. It actually says then, and and, uh, Paul is wanting for us to understand that, that he raised up David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. So God was looking for someone who would submit himself to what God wanted and pursue the things that God wanted. And if you study the the life of David, you'll find out that he did some of that well and some of that very poorly, right? Like it's a life of ups and downs. Probably a life at some level that we can identify with as far as the ups and downs of life go. Hopefully you're you're not getting into some of the things he got into. But you begin to, to realize that God is not using perfect people God is using people who are willing 
And Saul was not. And Saul lost the kingdom because of that. But there's a reason to highlight all of this that, that uh, Paul is going to take us in. And that is a fulfillment of the promise. Now I say of the promise because there's a specific promise that's being mentioned. He's going to talk about other promises and we'll deal with that as we get there. But here there's a promise given to this man, David. And that promise is that there is going to be a king sitting on his throne forever. And that's coming. And he's going to talk about this. And so he says, from this man's seed, verse 23, from this man's seed, like, like down through the, the um, uh, line of this individual, according to the promise. So in other words, Paul is, is, in his argument, is hinging this. Guys, you remember how historically God did this within our nation. But then God also said certain things. He promised certain things that we're now going to see come about. He's hinging, he's helping them to identify these things so that when they put their trust in what he's going to say, they, they know that there's authenticity to it. He's not just making up a story. According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, I'll identify him, Jesus. That's who this one is. All right. So he's proclaiming this message to him. And, and then he tells us, he says that there was someone, John the Baptist, someone who came before this Christ, this Jesus, to proclaim, to herald, to, to pronounce, hey, this is one's coming, right? And he says this in the next few verses, verse 24 and 25. After John had first preached before his coming, before the Lord's coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course... He said, who do you think I am? I love that phrase as he was finishing his course. That's a real nice way of saying he was about ready to die, just so you know. But the reason I love it, we're going to see it here and we're going to see it in a little bit in regards to David. There's reference about an individual living a life in such a way that they're being used by God. I think this is actually something you could put on your gravestone. He finished his course. She finished her course. This, in other words, is what God has had for me, and this is how I've been led, and I've wandered through life, always directed by him, and doing what it is that he desires for me to do. And so he finished, as he was about ready to finish his course, he didn't necessarily know this, but he says, uh, who do you think I am? The question that he was asking to the people, if you go back into the Gospels, you'll see this. He's asking them, like, do you think I'm the Christ? He says, I'm not he. Let me just be clear, I'm, I'm, nope, that's not, in fact, behold, there comes one after me, this Christ, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. There's a humility there, because if you know the, the culture of the day, that was a slave's job to do. When the owner came home, the slave was the one who took the sandals off and washed the, the person's foot. Do you remember our, our Savior actually washed people's feet? In humility. John also is in humility saying, hey, I, I'm just, I just get to be a mouthpiece. That's all I am. I really don't have a whole lot going other than that. <laughs> and it's only because he's working. I'm unworthy of even taking his sandals off. Tremendous heart, right? That again is something that if a person's going to come to know Christ as their Savior, there has to be a level of humility that occurs in that. There has to be a, a willingness to submit myself 
to what God says is true about me and what he has done to reconcile me back to him rather than trusting in myself as if I can do this. So again, we're just seeing part of the, of the framework of this. Now the next thing that comes up in this is that the message that he's given is for everyone. That's the wonder of it. You see, the Jews thought that this was just for us because we're the chosen generation, right? We're the chosen people. We're the ones. They failed to realize, they, they failed to remember that God had set them up as a light to the Gentiles. And that's what we're about ready to see. Both Jew and Gentile hearing this. And so he says in verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, there's the Jew, right? And those among you who fear God. There again, he's talking to, to uh, Gentiles at this point in time. Others who were there in the synagogue, who were listening, who were understanding, who, were, who had a heart to learn, just like Sergius Paulus, right? Having a heart to hear these things. And those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Right now. That's what he's saying. I'm telling you something right now. The word of this salvation has been sent to you in the form of Paul and Barnabas. It's here. It's arrived. We're going to tell you something about that. Now remember, we've already looked on the map that they're in Antioch and the Spirit of God comes and he says, hey, you take those two guys and you send them out. And so they do. And there's the sending and here's they're finally arriving here. And he's saying to you guys, the word of this salvation has been sent. So do you see how he has woven for them this whole storyline, helping their minds to gather that, understand that, and now he's going to now hit them with this, right? <clears throat> He goes on to say, sorry, there it goes, all that was done to Christ was in fulfillment of prophetical promises. We talked about the promise that was given to David. Now there's all kinds of promises, and he's not going to take the time to relate every one of them, but here's where a study of the Old Testament would be tremendously helpful for you, so that as you look at those things, you find that God is, um, there's a, a prediction of how the Christ would would suffer. Uh, that, in other words, for, for example, it talks about him being so beaten, so marred that he wasn't recognized as a man. We actually see that happen then in the Gospels. Time and time again, we'll see multiple, uh, in the Old Testament, we'll see multiple prophetic utterances of what was going to happen, and he's going to fulfill all of those. And so we see, verse in, in, in 27, he says, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers... Because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath. Just like he came to the synagogue, and the law was read, and the prophets were read. He's saying, look guys, even in Jerusalem, you guys all know this. This all happened there. But here's the deal. Even though our leaders were part of all of that, and this was being read over and over and over again, they didn't understand. They didn't see. Now, no surprise at some level, because even the prophets, as they spoke these things back in the Old Testament, the scripture tells us that they looked into these things that they were prophesying about, and they were trying to figure them out for themselves. They were trying to see, what is God talking about with this? And they couldn't see that, but they were longing. They wanted to see that. And Paul will eventually say, now this is being revealed to you guys. So no surprise that individuals who were power-hungry, individuals who, who wanted what was theirs or what they thought was theirs and someone was going to oppose all of that, no surprise that there's a rejection of this coming Messiah. 
He didn't fit the mold of what they thought he was going to be, so they were blind to that. Even though it was read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them, fulfilled those promises in condemning him. Isn't this ironic? Don't, don't, sometimes when I watch God at work, I just am staggered with how he does things. Oftentimes it's so very different than the way I think it should be. And that's been helpful for me. As I said before, I'm, I'm trusting God to less and less tell him what to do. <laughs> he has it all together. He knows all of this stuff. I find myself engaging with individuals and then telling God how he's supposed to convict them of their sin and how he's supposed to work in such a way with them and not even realizing, wait a minute, he's far ahead of me. He's been working in their lives already. He knows exactly how to do this. Why don't I just see what he's doing and partner together with him in that, right? What a better way to go. They actually fulfilled the very prophecies that they're reading about but not understanding and it says, and they found no cause for death in him. They asked, uh, and, and though they found no cause uh, for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. All that was, that was uh, prophesied about him, he fulfilled. All of that was done. Why is that important for us? Why would he include that in the things that he's talking about? I'll tell you this, because if he, if he fulfilled all of them except for one, he's not the Messiah. He's not God. It had to be all or nothing. There's no middle ground on this. And so Paul makes sure that they understand everything was fulfilled. People, you can have confidence that the one that you're putting your trust in for salvation, all the things that were predicted about him, he has accomplished there's even more that's still been predicted, and you can count on the fact that he will accomplish those too because you've seen him already doing this. And so it says, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But the next verse, but God raised him from the dead. <laughs> I, have, um, I have gone to Easter services for 57 years. I've heard this message over and over again in every Easter service and probably in a number of services in between. Raised him from the dead. It's so common to me that I can read that and just keep on moving on. But if you've never heard this before, that's got to be one incredible statement. God raised him from the dead. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever thought that you could do that kind of a thing? It's foolishness. Yesterday, Barb was, um, we had a service for Barb. Passed away last week. Nobody in that room downstairs was thinking, we're going to raise her from the dead. Nobody thought that. That didn't even cross our minds. Because it is so far out if someone were to step up and say, hey, hey, why are you guys crying here? Why, why, why are you in sorrow? She's going to rise from the dead here. Let, let's, let's, let's pray and ask God to raise her up. They would escort us out the door. This is incredible. His statement to these, put, your, put yourself in the shoes of the hearers of this message. What? 
You're telling me that someone came back from the dead? That God raised him up? Yes. He's going to repeat this several more times in the next few verses. Now, now why is that important for us? Why would he include this? Because this demonstrates two things. you got to catch this. Number one, the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead demonstrates to everyone that he was satisfied with the payment that was made. The wages of sin is death, right? Every one of us go to the grave so we know every one of us have sinned. There should be no doubt in our mind in regards to that. And the penalty for that is death. Jesus died for me and for you. And when God raised him from the dead, he was saying by that, I accept that sacrifice. Payment is done in full. That is amazing, isn't it? So whether we're used to hearing about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead or not, it still should stagger us. Oh, what a gracious God to accept the sacrifice of his son who came willingly and died for us. And because of that, I should have no question in my heart. The issue is this, people. God was satisfied with the sacrifice Are you satisfied with the sacrifice? If you're not satisfied, you'll try to find another way to God. There is no other way. He's going to speak of this in the next verse. There is no other way. God was satisfied. What keeps us from being satisfied? I'm satisfied with what Jesus did. I'll trust in what he did for me because you're satisfied with it too, Lord. And it's settled. The other reason that this is important for us, is because it demonstrates to us God's power over death as the penalty for sin. You talk about, remember when they came out of Egypt and he's talking about this with an uplifted arm? Like, hey, we're going to lift you people out of slavery and we're going to take you through dry land. (laughs) Dry land. Doesn't that blow your mind? How long do you have to blow on the oceans before you get dry land? Dry land, people. Parts it for him. Uplifted arm. How much stronger is he? Oh, watch this, people. I'm going to raise him from the dead. (laughs) No surprise to us because we know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1, right? We know that. We know he's the creator. We know he's the giver of life and and he decides when that's over. That changes everything for us. For Barb... That changes everything, right? Oh, this is, she ran the course of her life is what she did. It's not like it snuck up on God. Oh, my word, what happened? How did she get sick? Why didn't you guys tell me about this? Nothing snuck up on him. He's the giver of life. Life and death are in his hands. So we worship a God who nothing, nothing can stop him. And Paul is introducing this. And then he gives, he doesn't just stop with there. He gives more proof for their faith to rest on. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, now faith is the evidence and the substance, right? The evidence, do I get this right? The evidence of of things not seen, the substance, oh, I missed it. But it's using, sorry, someone say it. Louder? 
Thank you. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance and evidence. Faith is not blind faith. Faith is not hanging on nothing. Faith is hanging on substance, something of substance. He's just given us substance. I'm telling you something about this God. This is a God who can raise the dead. So now I'm going to tell you some other things to help you as you, like to his audience, so that you guys, what I'm, what I'm telling you, what is so incredible to you, you've you got to know something else about this so that you can just rest in that. Watch this. Verse 31. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Isn't that what we're talking about? Isn't that what, what Abby said, Acts chapter 1, right? Like, you shall be witnesses for me. That's what he's saying to every one of us. You shall be witnesses. What are we witnessing? Of? We're going to tell. We're going to explain something. Watch what happens. Two things come out of this. You guys, <clears throat> there were witnesses who are witnesses to this people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it actually tells us that there were over 500 witnesses. Think about this. You're up for murder, but you didn't do it. But no one else knows that, right? All the evidence seems to. And then you start bringing in this person and this person and this person and 500 people all to verify, oh no, he was in church on that day. <laughs> right? There should be enough in here. Come on, if they accuse me of something, I hope at least some of you will stand up. But if I get it, how long will it take for the jury to say, you know what, that's enough. We hear, okay, okay, okay. 500 people have all seen him. And in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes that, he says, many are still alive today. I'm not even telling you something that was historical that we can't verify. You can go talk to these individuals if you want to. So there's a witness of the people. You're one of the people. You're able to witness what God has done in your life. <clears throat> but then he says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, there it's repeated again, as it is also written in the second psalm. Now he's going to say something about what the word of God says on this. So it's not just our own witness. It's not just what God has done in our own lives, but we're able to go to the word of God. Here's what God says about this. <clears throat> and he says this. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So in the second psalm, if you go back and look at that, you'll actually find this was one of those promises. This was one of those things that was stated about him that now is happening. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's a reference to his resurrection. He was raised. That's what he's talking about. People get into this whole argument of begotten. Well, there he must have been born. That means he wasn't God. No, that's not what begotten is talking about at all. It's talking about the son of unique position. He's the only one. It's him and him alone. <clears throat> and he says then, in verse 34, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. So he's, re he's going back into more scripture. But notice what he's saying here. He, in that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. <clears throat> Hebrews will tell us, in 7, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, it will tell us that Jesus died once for all. And when he died, 
He was raised by the Father to not see corruption. His, his, excuse me, his body didn't go through the decay that is normal. It didn't happen. <clears throat> in fact, it says in the next verse, therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. It's actually predicted. And so we know it to be so. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep. There it is again, that same kind of a terminology. He served his generation. How did he do that? Go read the, the, the um, life of David. And sometimes you're going, how in the world? Why would he think? No, God was using him. And he was serving his generation. But he fell asleep. That's a nice way of saying that he died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So, so who he was talking about in that psalm has to be someone besides himself. And there's these sure mercies, mercies that he's just mentioned. And that is the surety that, you know what, David? There will be someone on your throne. And so Luke, even as he wrote the gospel of Luke, makes sure to tell us that, they, or that Joseph was of the house in the lineage of David. He was in the line is what he was really important for us because it follows along with what God has predicted. And then we get to their, our key point here in all that he's saying. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, this Jesus that I've introduced to you, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. It's through him. That's why I was saying earlier, there is no other way. You're going to die someday, and that tells you you're a sinner. And the price has to be paid. The possibility is, just as incredible as it is that Jesus was raised from the dead, it's also incredible that he can forgive you of your sins. And it's only through this man. He's preached to you, proclaimed, announced to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, it's only by him, everyone who believes is justified. In other words, declared righteous. It's a legal term. It's a judge bringing the gavel down and saying, because the penalty was paid and you put your trust in Christ, you are now free. That price is no longer yours because it was paid right there by him. And it's only through him that we are able to be justified, to be declared righteous. But only those who believe, who believe is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law only condemned. That's all it ever did. It could point to the sin and say, you're going to have to pay. But it could never satisfy. Only the blood of Christ satisfied. Paul finishes then out with a warning to them. He's laid that out for them. And he reminds them that to disregard what he has been demonstrating to them by not believing is going to be a problem for them. He says it in this verse 40. Beware, therefore, in light of all that I've told you here, beware, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Now remember, he has already told them, guys, there's been these things that have been predicted about the Lord, and they've come true. There should be a mentality that says, hey, when God predicts something, it always happens. And so now there's a warning. And this warning, I love it because it's not, it's telling them that they have a choice. It's telling them that they have an opportunity. But if they make the wrong choice, then, then what has been prophesied, what has been warned about that choice, 
that's going to that's gonna affect them too. He says this, Behold, you despisers. They despise the truth. They didn't believe. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For a work, for I work, a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He's warning them. I've told you something here. I've expressed this. I've walked you through in a, in a, in a quick way. He's, he's described some of the history of it. He's made huge leaps, right, from David a thousand years ahead then. right? He's just, but he's highlighting some things so that their hearts and their minds can grab a hold of that and they have an opportunity to trust, to believe what God is saying. He's saying, but there's a, there's a price to pay for not. Just as the nation of Israel came through the Red Sea, and they didn't believe God, and they wandered in the wilderness, so too that can be true for you and I as a believer. We can wander through life as a believer and never enjoy the abundance of life that God has provided for us. I've come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. You know how you enjoy abundant life? Same way you got life. You have eternal life when you put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You have abundant life as you walk with him and trust him today. You as a believer have the same kind of a warning, I as a believer, to trust him. If you're an unbeliever, guess what? You have the same warning, to trust him. God delights. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what he wants. He delights in us trusting him. My time is up. I'll tell you this, we're not through the chapter. Next week as we look at this, we're going to find that there are a few who don't heed this warning. And they pay the price for that. But there are some who heed this warning and rejoice in it. And that's what we want to be as believers. We want to be trusting him. We want to walk forward with him. As we've been watching this story of Acts unfold, we are. I loved how Mark Francis talked about how he used that of Jerusalem is like our Winchester, right? Judea, Samaria, our country, uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth, out there. We have an opportunity to trust God to use us in any way that he desires. We just want to know what it is and get on board with it. How exciting. I hope you're on the edge of your seat and waiting for him to do that. Let's pray. Father, <clears throat> thank you so much for this wonderful message. Um, that Paul has spoken, and for you recording it for us. Thank you so much, because it has been teaching us some awesome things. First and foremost, about you, God. You are awesome. You're incredible. How in the world do you raise someone from the dead? We can't do that, Lord. And so we just, we're in awe of you, because you are so far greater, far superior to us. Father, also as we <clears throat> read through that, not only do we see the awesomeness of who you are, we see the awesomeness of your plan, how you have provided a means, a way for forgiveness of sins. It's brilliant, Lord. We're unworthy of it, but you love us so much and you provided it. I pray that you'll solidify that in our hearts. Sometimes we struggle with that. Would you help us with that? And Lord, as we engage with other people too, would you help us to 
as we've looked at this, to have something in our minds of just a, <clears throat> an expression to, to help people to hear, to understand, to, to, to get a hold of and put their faith in. It's not in our ability to convince them. It's in your spirit using your word and witnesses like ourselves to tell someone else this wonderful glad tidings that they might hear too. To them, the word of salvation has been sent. Use us in that way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.